Thanks for tuning in. I'm Shelby. And I'm that other guy. That other guy is Renee. (laughs) And you're listening to The Creepy Burrito. episode, we talked about JFK's rise to power, the state of the country, and ongoing tensions during his presidency, and just a little history brush up to get the bigger picture behind some of the conspiracy theories behind the JFK assassination. I also focused on what was taught in history surrounding the JFK assassination, which is the results of the Warren Commission that originally investigated JFK's assassination in 1964. The Warren Commission concluded that all shots came from Lee Harvey Oswald from behind JFK from the sixth floor of the Texas School Depository, and that the first shot hit JFK and Texas Governor John Connolly, the second shot missed, and the third fatal shot hit JFK in the head, creating the single bullet theory. And they also concluded that Jack Ruby acted alone in killing Lee Harvey Oswald two days later. The many disputes with the evidence related to the gunshots, autopsy reports, indicate a different series of events on November 22nd of 1963. The results of the House Select Committee on Assassinations investigation came to a different conclusion in 1978. That, based off of the acoustic evidence, established that there were four shots fired a few years after it was discredited because it was based off a police officer motorcycle radio recording. But either way, it was admitted, and then they discredited it later. And they also theorized that one shot was coming from a second assassin in the grassy knoll area, which would indicate an act of conspiracy. They did still conclude that Lee Harvey Oswald was involved in the shootings, but there was not a thorough investigation into the possibilities of acts of conspiracy, and that the president did not have adequate protection during the motorcade. Now that we're all back up to speed, we're going to take a closer look at Lee Harvey Oswald, Jack Ruby, discrepancies with the evidence, and conspiracies surrounding the assassination of JFK. So first, you have to ask yourself, who was... Lee Harvey Oswald. He was a troubled youngster with a possible reading disability, mommy issues, and described as emotionally disturbed. Off to a great start. (laughs) He was in and out of school and moved around from New Orleans, Louisiana, to Dallas, Texas, New York City. As a teenager, he said that he was interested in books on communism. Now, whether he had a full comprehensive understanding of that or was building up this dreamy idea of what socialism was, is something that he would come to find out in the future. He quit school when he was just 17 years old, and then went to join the Marines, primarily to escape his mother. During his time in the Marines, he was primarily trained on radar operation, which required a security clearance, and he did also receive the designation of sharpshooter. His reputation in the military was pretty much the same temperament as his childhood, which was a fucking mess. He was court-martialed after he accidentally shot himself in the elbow with a unauthorized 22 caliber handgun. Wow. And then he was court-martialed again for fighting with a sergeant who he thought was responsible for his punishment for the shooting. And then he was demoted to private, briefly imprisoned. What? And had a third incident when he was on uh, night sentry duty, so like going, doing his rounds, and he fired his rifle into the jungle. Oh my god, why? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. There was no reasoning. I didn't <laughs> see anything. Like, he wasn't shooting at anybody or anything. He's he just, just like, shooting LOL. off into the jungle. Yeah. Okay. And um, he was known for his, like, continued talks about, like, pro-Soviet beliefs and had started to learn Russian. He wasn't great at it, from what I've read. A lot of people shit-talked how bad his Russian was. In 1959, he received a hardship discharge from active service to help his mother and was placed into the reserves. Within a month, he was already traveling to the Soviet Union and got a temporary visa for a week. 
The day that his visa was going to expire, he had cut his wrists in the bathroom of the hotel. Oh my god. So that when his tourist guide had arrived to escort him from the country, he had to be held under psychiatric observation in the hospital. So that's why he did it, was so that he would have to stay in the country longer. Oh my god, what a lunatic. And then... He went to the U.S. Embassy in Moscow and told them that he wanted to renounce his U.S. citizenship and threatened that he would give up information that he learned during his time in the Marines to the Soviet officials. Needless to say, his hardship and honorable discharge was changed to undesirable at that point. During his time living in Minsk, he worked at a factory that produced radios, televisions, military, and space electronics. He received government-subsidized, fully-furnished studio apartment, supplemental pay to his paychecks, so he had comfortable living by working-class Soviet standards, but at the same time, he was kept under constant surveillance. By 1961, his reviews on living in the Soviet Union had started to change. He had an entry in his diary stating, I'm starting to reconsider my desire about staying. The work is drab. The money I get is nowhere to be spent. There's no nightclubs or bowling alleys, no places of recreation except for the trade union dances. I've had enough. Shortly afterwards, he wrote the U.S. Embassy in Moscow requesting return of his American passport and proposing to return to the U.S. if any charges against him would be dropped. In March of 1961, he met Marina Prusikova, a 19-year-old pharmacology student and they were married only six weeks later. Their first child was born February of 1962, and a few months later, their family had gotten all the paperwork with the embassy to return to the United States, where they settled in Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas area. Upon returning to the U.S., due to his personality, he had a hard time finding a stable job, but that doesn't mean he wasn't busy in the months leading up to JFK's assassination. In March of 1963, he mail-order purchased a Carcano rifle and a Smith & Weston Model 10 revolver under the alias name of A. Hedel, which was later supposedly linking Lee Harvey Oswald to an assassination attempt to kill U.S. Major General Edwin Walker on April 10th of 1963. So, supposedly... Oswald fired his Carcano rifle at Walker through his window from less than 100 feet away as Walker sat in his Dallas home. The bullet hit the window frame and Walker's only injuries were bullet fragments in his forearm. Oswald targeted Walker because he saw him as a leader of a fascist organization because Walker was an outspoken anti-communist and before JFK's assassination, there were no suspects for the Walker shooting. Weird. Until after. And then all of this comes up about this other assassination attempt and that Lee Harvey Oswald was the primary suspect for two assassinations at the same time. The bullet in the Walker assassination attempt was too damaged to match conclusively to the JFK assassination, but it was considered extremely likely that it was from the same rifle. Some believe that this entire attempt to assassinate Walker was just a setup placed to further condemn Lee Harvey Oswald for the JFK assassination. There's a couple problems with this whole terror theory, because granted, I find it believable enough that Lee Harvey Oswald was batshit crazy enough to try to assassinate Walker, but the major flaw that you have here is that he was only 100 feet away and then misses in a less high-pressure situation, and flees off without finishing the job. But at the same time, you're saying that he could fire three shots and take out the president while in a moving vehicle from the sixth floor of a building. True. So weird. Like, how does that compute? Unless because him trying to assassinate Walker the first time, he just kind of... Get the jitters out? Yeah, got the jitters. Oswald, in the months leading up to the assassination, spent some time in New Orleans and was in correspondence with pro-Fidel Castro Fair Play for Cuba Committee headquarters in New York. And he told them that he wanted to open a Fair Play for Cuba Committee in New Orleans. Even when they declined, he went rogue and did it anyways, again using his alias name, A.J. Hedel, 
as chapter president on his membership card. Oswald was seen passing out pro-Castro leaflets and got into a fight with an anti-Castro, Carlos Bringer. The fight was broken up by the police and taken into custody for disturbing the peace. According to some conspiracy theorists, it was almost like it was planned and that they were smirking as they were being arrested. Rolling the conspiracy cogs that Oswald was working for the FBI or CIA and basically that he was bait. So he was just supporting Castro and passing out these leaflets as counterintelligence so that pro-Castro people would come to him and he would be able to give that intel to the FBI or CIA. Gotcha. In September of 1963, Oswald made a trip to Mexico City to apply for a transit visa at the Cuban embassy, claiming that he wanted to visit Cuba on his way to the Soviet Union. They had initially declined and stated that he would need Soviet approval for the request. In October, the Cuban embassy approved the visa, but Oswald was back in the U.S. and said that he had given up on his plans to go to Cuba and the Soviet Union. But at the same time... Oswald wrote to the Soviet embassy in Washington, D.C., saying, Had I been able to reach the Soviet embassy in Havana as planned, the embassy there would have had the time to complete our business. According to the investigations, there was no proof or positive identification that it was, in fact, Lee Harvey Oswald that had gone to or written to the embassy, but was still speculated that he was trying to get the necessary documents from the embassies to make a quick escape following the assassination. Or is that all just an elaborate setup to make it look like he was trying to flee the country? Intriguing. Lee Harvey Oswald started his job at the Texas School Book Depository on October 16th. The Dallas branch of FBI started looking at Oswald as a person of interest following Oswald's contact with the Soviet embassy in Mexico. Soon after, the FBI shown up at his home when Lee Harvey Oswald wasn't there. Just weeks prior to the JFK assassination, Oswald had gone to the Dallas FBI office requesting to speak with Special Agent James Hostie. When he wasn't available, leaving a little love note, basically warning them to stop bothering his wife and coming to his house, also included some threats that he would blow up the FBI. Now, what happened to this little, little note? Apparently, Agent Hostie had destroyed it after Oswald was named as suspect in the Kennedy assassination. Oh... Weird. Weird that you would do that, huh? Hmm. Now, part of the day of events we talked about in the first part, so Lee Harvey Oswald went to work, apparently with a long bag with curtain rods, according to his co-workers. After this shooting, Oswald had covered the rifle with some boxes and then left the sixth floor room through a back stairwell. Roughly 90 seconds after the shots, He's seen on the second floor lunchroom, calmly drinking a Coca-Cola when Dallas officers come in, with the understanding that Oswald and his manager work there, the officer lets them leave. At about 12.40 p.m., 10 minutes after the shooting, he's seen getting onto a city bus. Going to the roaming house that he was staying at, he abruptly changes and then leaves the house on foot, when around 1.15 p.m. is when he runs into Officer Tippett. They have their altercation, When Officer Tippett was trying to get out of the car, Oswald shoots him and then flees on foot until he ducked out into a movie theater when the employees called the police that had arrived to arrest Lee Harvey Oswald. Following his arrest, Oswald came across reporters in a hallway and he declared, I didn't shoot anybody. They've taken me in because of the fact that I lived in the Soviet Union. I'm just a patsy. Many researchers call this into question that he was a known CIA agent, that he was just a fake defector program that was ran by the CIA. His mother insisted that her son was recruited by the U.S. government and sent to Russia for counterintelligence operations. In his interrogation, Oswald denied killing JFK and Officer Tippett. He denied owning a rifle and said that the two photographs of him holding a rifle and pistol were fakes. He also denied carrying a long, bulky package into work that morning of the assassination. He denied telling his co-worker that he wanted a ride to Irving to get curtain rides for his apartment. He said that the package contained only his lunch. Oswald also denied knowing an A.J. Hiddell. 
And then he was shown a forged Selective Service System card bearing his photograph and the alias name, Alec James Hadell on it, stating that it was in his possession at the time of the arrest. Oswald refused to answer any questions concerning the card, saying, You have the card yourself, and you know as much as I do. So what does that mean? Either they knew that they made a fake and is framing him, right. or they it's an inside job and they know about it. Right. So which kind of batshit is he? <laughs> On Sunday, November 24th at 11.21 a.m. Central Standard Time, as Oswald was being escorted to a car in the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters for the transfer from city jail to county jail, he was fatally shot by Dallas nightclub owner Jack Ruby. The shooting was broadcast on live American television. Unconscious, Oswald was taken by ambulance to Parkland Memorial Hospital, where Kennedy had died two days earlier. He died at 1.07 p.m. by gunshot wound to the chest. Arrested immediately after the shooting, Jack Ruby said that he had been distraught by the Kennedy's death and killing Oswald would spare Mrs. Kennedy the discomfiture of coming back to trial. And like I said in part one, if you think Jack Ruby done this out of being a patriotic citizen or as a duty to his country and goodness of his little pea-picking heart, may I remind you, he had a history of being a common criminal, evidence of illegal gambling, narcotics, and prostitution, and working with organized crime figures, and being a mid-level organized crime figure himself. This shooting, it occurred in an area where Lee Harvey Oswald was being escorted. All people in the area had to have proof of identification as a reporter. So how does a mid-level crime figure qualify to be in that area during that time? This should be a red flag of organized crime involvement in the JFK assassination that Jack Ruby was sent to take out Lee Harvey Oswald before he had a chance to say anything that would rat out the conspirators involved. Some believe something went wrong with Lee Harvey Oswald's initial arrest in the movie theater, and that's when he should have initially been taken out, and then Jack Ruby was just a backup plan to get rid of him. Okay, I can see that. I can see that. A patsy for the patsy. I mean, even the assassination itself was very messy. And then the assassination following the assassination, probably pretty messy still. Yeah. If you got more hands in the pot, it becomes a lot messier. Right. Also not for nothing, even if he says that, you know, he took him out to spare Jackie the discomfort from having to go to trial. He also took away her justice of having him put to trial mm-hmm. for killing the president. So, like, that's kind of fucked. I, I don't remember if... I don't think she talked about it in the tapes that she found that, um, like, she pretty much sounded like LBJ was behind it based off of, like, her thoughts and quotes and everything that I've seen um, on her side of it. It wasn't necessarily Lee Harvey Oswald, but, I mean, that definitely did muddy the waters and take the focus off of it like i feel like if there was a trial of lee harvey oswald it would have definitely opened up those doors we're gonna take a little bit of a closer look at the single bullet theory because to believe that all shots came from behind jfk from one lone shooter lee harvey oswald according to the warren commission report all three shots to kill jfk and injure governor Connolly. the reason for the single bullet theory is because of how quickly Connolly reacted after jfk was hit it was too soon for oswald to have operated a bolt action rifle and fire off another shot to hit Connolly. So that's when commission counsel Arlen Specter theorized that both men must have been hit by a single bullet, which entered into JFK's upper back, exited his throat, and then struck Connolly, breaking a rib, shattering his wrist, and then finally landing in his thigh, all with one bullet. Hmm. Seems a little, uh... Wonky, right? Yeah. Like, how do you hit, like, right behind... So it's, like, right by your shoulder blade? Right. And then traveling to where his Adam's apple is, like... Had to go up. How do you go of. up? Then and down. Then, and then down. And downer. And then downer. <laughs> but also coming from, like, such an upward angle. Yeah. And then looking at it, like, it doesn't... That doesn't make sense. Make sense. 
The magic bullet that was deemed to have done all of this was found somewhat mysteriously on a stretcher near an elevator in Parkland Hospital about an hour after the victims had been brought there. Let's look at the problems with this whole entire theory. The timing. In the Zapruder film, it shows Kennedy clearly wounded as much as a second before Connolly. And then the commission's idea of a delayed reaction by Connolly is implausible. Connolly himself was certain that he'd been struck by like a separate bullet. Next, looking at the trajectory, the Parkland doctors believe that the neck wound to be an entrance wound, not an exit. And the location of JFK's back wound, as measured by the shirt and jacket holes, medical witnesses, autopsy photos, and other evidence, is too low for a shot to be fired from the sixth floor to have exited the neck wound where it did. The Warren Commission misrepresented the back wound location in multiple drawings, which we will be getting to shortly as we go through all of the medical evidence or lack thereof. So just hold on. We will get there, I promise. Hold on to your conspira pants. (laughs) (laughs) And lastly, this magical bullet that had shown up at Parkland Hospital. The bullet was found on the stretcher and it's virtually undamaged and had no blood or tissue on it. Its appearance is consistent with having been fired through a rifle into water or cotton, recovered, and then planted. Also, there is a serious question to whether the minimum amount of lead missing from the bullet can account for the fragments left behind in JFK and Connolly, because Connolly had a decent amount of fragments through his wrist, and it just doesn't, it doesn't add up. There were so many government-led investigations into the JFK assassination to constantly reassure the country that there was no internal conspiracy to take out JFK. With each investigation, more inconsistencies, especially when it came to the medical evidence. In 1968, there was the Ramsey-Clark panel analysis. In 1975, there was the Rockefeller Commission analysis. In 1979, there was the United States House Select Committee on Assassinations. And then there was an Assassination Records Review Board created by the President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act of 1992. Because this was such a high-profile case, you would expect extra care There were so many people involved in the Parkland Hospital and then at the Bethesda Naval Hospital to complete the official autopsy. If all of the parties involved were telling the truth, then they should all line up and give the same depiction of the extent of JFK's injuries, which is not the case. So I guess the best place to start would be with the description of JFK's head injuries. All the doctors that assisted in the Parkland Hospital that day had described his head injury as a large gaping hole in the back of the president's head. But, according to the autopsy completed at the Naval Hospital, stated a small bullet entry wound at the back of his head and the massive exit wound at the top right of his head. According to their theory, that upon entry caused a cratering effect that expelled fragments of the skull. The Warren Commission had explained JFK's backward motion as a neurological response that his body had tensed up and then pushed backward, and that there was brain matter and skull fragments projected inside the car. But after personally watching the Zapruder film a million times, Jackie is clearly seen jumping onto the back of the car to grab pieces of his skull and brain matter. If he was shot from the front, That would make sense. You don't see a natural trajectory of matter going forward upon exit. And the one thing that really gets me that I couldn't find anything on is if he was being shot from behind, similar to the first shot, then where's the fatal bullet that exited his head? After watching and watching, if the shot came from behind, there would be a similar trajectory. Jackie was cradling JFK after the first shot and she was looking at him when the headshot hits. Watching it and watching it, it should have landed somewhere inside that car, if not hitting Mrs. Connolly, Mr. Connolly. Somebody else. Uh, one of the Secret Service agents that were in the vehicle with them. I'm just saying, that's that's my opinion. That's been, that's what keeps me up at night. I mean, it just makes you think, is this a second magic bullet then? 
Second magic bullet. <laughs> like, does it just Not only headshot and then just whoops off into like Neverland, like non existence? Yeah. Now, looking more into the medical evidence that was brought forth, the evidence that was brought into the Warren Commission wasn't photos from the autopsy because they were what they called too shocking. Instead, the officers that completed the autopsy, which was Commander Thornton Boswell, Commander James Humes, and Lieutenant Colonel Fink, that provided drawings, which is pretty sketchy, if you ask me. Do you see what I did there? I do. Cause provided they're, drawings. They're drawings and they're mm, that's sketchy. sketchy. <laughs> Thanks. The artist that made these drawings was a lower class and didn't get to work on them from like actual photos it was merely made from the officer's verbal and written description of the autopsy which would give them full power to align with what the commission was looking for to support their narrative as well as leaves room for human error in making the drawings even from the autopsy official report and the photos had inconsistencies of the description of the first shot that entered just below the shoulder line but in the picture it was moved up the neck the second class petty officer, Rydberg, that had made these drawings, didn't testify for any of the investigations, and then after leaving the Navy, wrote a book entitled The Head of the Dog, which gives a more accurate picture of what he believed were JFK's injuries. He felt that he was used to support the cover-up of the conspiracy of JFK's assassination. What's even more alarming than the pictures drawn up, based off a description in the autopsy is that it wasn't even the original autopsy. It didn't come out until 1996 and the deposition of James Humes had burned his original notes and autopsy report because it was just too gruesome that there was the president's blood on the paper. But at the same time, there were other documents that were submitted that had the president's blood on it. He stated that it was someone else's work on the report and he didn't want to make a habit of destroying someone else's work. Plus, he was having some issues with the bullet wound from the back. They weren't able to find an exit wound or an actual bullet in the x-rays. So the next morning, he had to call Dr. Perry from the Parkland Hospital that had advised they had to perform an emergency tracheotomy and use the existing wound in the neck. During his deposition, James Hume stated that he hadn't seen the autopsy photos up to that point. When he saw him, he said that it was hard to tell what was in the pictures. The Assassination Review Board then looked to retired Navy Warrant Officer Sandra Spencer, who handled the processing of the autopsy film and wasn't questioned by the Warren Commission. During her deposition in 1997, she brought with her some pictures that were printed just a few days before JFK's autopsy, explaining that the lab bought huge quantities of photographic paper, so the markings on the back of the prints she brought would match the autopsy photos she processed, but they didn't, indicating that they were printed at a different time or at a different place. And the official photos that are in the National Archives weren't anything like the ones that she remembered processing. She stated that the prints we printed did not have the same massive head damages that is visible here. The face. The eyes were closed and the mouth was closed. It was more of a rest position than these show. And we'll be sharing the photos that are in the National Archives. These are blurry, terrible photos that lead to more questions than answers. The photos in the National Archives seem to have been taken in a bright medical setting with the body bloody, making it blurry and hard to see. These photos contained a side profile of the undamaged side of JFK's head. Another photo showed the damage to the top and back of his head with blood and brain matter visible. There was a shot of his right side of his head but it's different from the top view in the aspect that there's a large jagged cut that goes past his front hairline and the skin is peeled back. This one picture raises so many questions because seemingly this jagged cut, it, it wouldn't be a proper autopsy cut to remove his brain, but also not a pattern that would be due to like an exit wound. Which leads some to speculate that this cut is in such a manner to cover up 
an entry wound to the front of his head and also cause for other theories of body altercation. Whether that be through uh, withheld information about a brain surgery or a casket switch with two hearses or that someone had cut into him at some point on Air Force One while LBJ was being sworn in, there's a multitude of theories that spin off of this one photo. And finally, probably one of the most commonly seen is what's called the stare of death photo, which is a front view of his face that showed the wound of JFK's throat and his eyes and mouth open. In the photos that Sandra Spencer remembers processing seem to have been taken in a darkened room with a flash, with no blood or open cavities, pristine, clear pictures is how she described them. And one thing I want to point out that's important that she said about the eyes and mouth being closed, because that makes a lot more sense than the photos in the National Archive that are supposedly from JFK's autopsy, for a few reasons. If these photos were taken in Bethesda, number one, why would they put him in a casket, move him with his eyes open? Because that's fucking creepy and a little bit disturbing. But number two, this autopsy didn't start until at least 8 p.m., which is hours after that he was declared dead. And if you didn't realize, you blink so that your eyes don't dry out. But in these photos, especially the stare of death photo, from the front, his eyes still have a glossy look over them which they wouldn't that much later. Like your eyes would already start drying, drying out and discoloration. Fluids. And number three, from staring at all of these photos like 50 billion times because I became obsessive, his eyes and mouth are opened and shut in such variations for each photo. Like staged? Like somebody's opening and closing them for the pictures? either staged or um, there are theories that this is someone that is alive that was a body double for JFK. There's a, a couple couple things. So how could these photos be faked? Okay, so like, let's look at the possibilities. Oh my God. You got photographic forgery. I'm not sure to what extent they could do that in the 1960s. Mm. So I'm I'm not going down that rabbit you hole. Mean they didn't have Adobe Photoshop. <laughs> <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Um, and then, like I was saying, so is this a bodied double? Not my personal number one answer, but some people believe that it, apparently there's people that do that whole ear placement and the structure of the face mm. and kind of like the comparable. I was Nicholas Barclay. Uh, my brain it immediately goes into the long conspiracy theory about Paul McCartney because of his face structure. But anyways, now what I find to be the most believable would be a partial reconstruction to close the wound in the back of the head. That would explain the normal cuts on the top of his head. FBI agent Frank O'Neill, who was present during the autopsy, said that the back of JFK's head looked like it's been doctored. If there was an exit wound to the back of his head matching the description that everyone gave at the Parkland Hospital or multiple doctors. So they closed that wound and then cut this open. So that's why there's that irregular jagged cut at the top of his head and depicting an exit wound up here. And granted, Sandra Spencer's deposition is 30 years after his assassination. But I feel like if these were valid photos, she would have remembered at least one of them because I don't think seeing the president's fatal headshots is something that you just forget. And that makes you wonder, where are the autopsy photos that she did develop? Nobody knows. So far, we have burned notes, lost photos. What else could go missing? His brain. In 1965, Bobby Kennedy requested autopsy materials being kept at the White House to be transferred to Miss Evelyn Lincoln, personal secretary of President JFK for safekeeping in the National Archives. Dr. Berkeley stated that the brain was included when delivered to the archives. When the Ramsey-Clark panel analysis in 1968 was reopening the investigation, they started looking back into the autopsy materials and then discovering missing items. When Evelyn Lincoln was asked about it, she said that Bobby had arranged to have his secretary pick up the locker about a month after she had received it. It's been speculated that Bobby had obtained and disposed of his brother's remains himself to avoid being placed in public displays in the future. 
The only items taken were physical specimens, such as tissues, blood smear slides, and a container of gross material. The photographs and x-rays were left in the footlocker. But then, who's to say that this was even JFK's brain? Because upon reviewing the 90s review board, contended that the brain photographs in the records were not of JFK's brain, and show way less damage than he had sustained. FBI agent Frank O'Neill weighed in on the dispute, saying that there was way too much of it present for the injuries that happened on that day. There was speculation that there were multiple brain exams, first being of JFK's and then the second being a fraudulent one, and that's what was put into the National Archive to support the Warren Commission. Based off the brain exam, JFK's brain weighed the same as a normal uninjured brain which just doesn't add up. Alrighty, now that you toughed it through all the medical stuff, I feel like it's safe to say that the entire autopsy was completely botched, which leads you to wonder, why was it? If it's on purpose, then it's proof of a conspiracy to cover up a shot from the front challenging the Warren Commission. I find it hard to believe that Parkland Hospital that was known for being a trauma center would inaccurately describe the initial injuries that JFK came in with and that there would be so many inconsistencies between two hospitals for the same injuries. It it just doesn't make sense. Unless it was a cover-up. And I just want to quickly address some of the other overlooked items and unidentified witnesses from the motorcade. Multiple people state that they saw a cloud of smoke coming from the grassy knolls that day. Some even stated seeing what is referred to as the Badge Man, a man that appears to be wearing a uniform similar to a policeman, either insinuating Dallas police played a part or that someone else was impersonating an officer and could have been behind the fatal shot from the grassy knolls. There were also two men sitting on the sidewalk, one holding an umbrella and the other man with a dark complexion. These two men supposedly didn't know each other, but it's believed that they were signalmen. They were seen raising their arm and opening the umbrella to signal when the shot was clear. In some theories, you may see an early speculation that the umbrella man acted alone and used a dart with a paralyzing agent, but that was a little bit too far-fetched. And in 1978, Louis Witt came forward saying that he was the umbrella man, but based off of the inconsistencies with his story, leaves a lot of room for doubt. Another commonly unidentified witness was the babushka lady. She was seen in the, um, She was seen in a babushka. (laughs) She was seen in a babushka. And was a lady. (laughs) She was also filming, and um, you could see her in the Zapruder film. In the 1970s, Beverly Oliver came forward saying that it was her, but said after the assassination, she was contacted by two men that she thought were FBI or secret service agents that took the film and never returned it to her. Following the JFK assassination, there were a string of mysterious or suspicious deaths of witnesses connected to his assassination, which would definitely be convenient for anyone wishing to keep the truth from becoming public information. A newspaper journalist, Dorothy Killigan, was writing an article about a conversation she had with Jack Ruby while he was on trial for murder. While she was digging for answers following the assassination, she was found dead in her house caused by a fatal combination of alcohol and barbiturates. Does that sound familiar? Marilyn Monroe? Marilyn Monroe. Cough, cough, wink, wink. But also, there were more high-profile suspicious deaths that were following his assassination, like mafia figures such as Sam Giacana, John Roselli, Carlos Prio, Jimmy Hoffa, Charles Nicoletti, Leo Masseri, Richard Kane, Salvatore Granello, and Dave Yaras were likely murdered to prevent them from revealing their knowledge. If you dig even further, the list just goes on and on of other suspicious deaths of witnesses or anyone connected to the assassination. It's fucking bananas. I do not have time to name all the witnesses and their stories. Way too many. 
way too many. Which should be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. They are suspicious. They are suspicious. <laughs> what makes the JFK conspiracy theory so interesting is most consider multiple groups either acting alone or in combination to creating this massive plot and subsequential cover-up. Because you have to look at what parties had the means to not only take out the president, but to cover it after investigation and investigation year in and year out. Most theories include the CIA, organized crime, aka the mafia, the government of Cuba and Cuban exiles, or domestic individuals and groups including LBJ, Hoover, the FBI, Secret Service. There are literally hundreds of combination of these theories out there, all seemingly in some way that his assassination was a coup d'etat, which if you failed French like us, translates to below a state, which means removing of an existing government from power through violent means, which I feel like pretty much accurately depicts what had happened. Whether that be due to the military-industrial complex with JFK heading towards pulling out of Vietnam, or at the hands of other governments involving the Soviet Union, Cuban government, or the KGB, that were trying to get revenge for humiliation of having to back down during the Cuban Missile Crisis, or the Bay of Pigs invasion, or attempts to kill Castro. The list, it just goes on and on with the tensions that were ongoing. If you're not sure about these tensions, check out part one. I did a great job. And last but not least, most likely, the domestic tensions that were ongoing between the FBI, the CIA, within the U.S. government itself, and the back-and-forth relationship with the Mafia. Of course, any of the investigations done wouldn't conclude that the American government would have anything to do with the assassination of the president of their own country. But it's easy to say that at some point they couldn't deny the large amount of inconsistencies with the evidence or lack thereof, and as a resort, in later investigations, as a committee said that Kennedy was probably assassinated as a result of conspiracy. But unable to identify the other gunmen involved. That they can say for certain that it wasn't the Secret Service, the FBI, the CIA, because that would cause domestic uprising, or the Soviet government or the Cuban government, because that would cause a foreign uprising. But when it comes to anti-Castro Cuban groups or organized crime, they're like, we don't know, probably, maybe we're part of it. Because it's a lot easier to blame people that are already perceived as villains in American society. And before we talk about our thoughts on it, let's do some of the honorable mentions. The flimsy theories. <laughs> the honorable mentions. <laughs> so, there is a wild ride of a theory involving George W. Bush. It's a whole theory that Bush played a part in the CIA sent to work with anti-Castro group as a part of the Zapata operation. This theory is pretty involved, including college secret society called Skull and Bones Association. And there's a documentary on Prime right now uh, by Dark Legacy. It's like the seven degrees of Bush rundown, and I can't even synopsis it right now. But if you're interested and hate Bush and you want to blame the assassination on him, go watch it. Uh, the next flimsy theory is Joe DiMaggio. That he killed JFK, blaming the Kennedy family for the death of Marilyn Monroe. Apparently, he told his lawyer, Morris Engelberg, it's in their blood. And what they did to me will never be forgotten. They murdered the one person I loved. So I just want to put my thoughts out there. I don't think that a baseball player had the means to do all of this cover-up work, all as revenge for his ex-wife, Marilyn. Granted, he did love her, and like, cute fan fiction, but I think it's pretty weak sauce. Next one, I didn't know about until I started researching, was a suspect. It was Woody Harrelson's dad. What? Yeah, in 1980... Charles Harrelson, convicted of shooting federal judge John H. Wood Jr., was arrested in September that year after having a six-hour standoff with the police on the side of a highway 
At some point, he confessed to the assassination of JFK in addition to Judge Wood, but later took that little nugget of information back, saying that he didn't have anything to do with it. He just wanted to buy time to reassure that he would live longer if he was such a high person of interest. Yeah. Yeah. No. (laughs) Right? No. I thought it was... I thought that was crazy. I was like, oh, okay, never heard that one. And this last theory gets me pretty, pretty fucking heated. If you are one of the people that believes Jackie Kennedy did it, because there's some out there that believe that she had some hand in it, which I find completely ridiculous. From my perspective, she definitely seemed that she loved her husband. She even had um, tapes that were released after she died that were from before and throughout JFK's presidency that weren't released until years later. And she did talk about her husband's infidelities, but also had her own infidelities during their marriage. So she still was infatuated with her husband. I don't believe that she would just kill her husband merely because he was cheating on her. Like, I feel like that's a flimsy argument. And plus, this was the 1960s. I don't think the Secret Service, CIA, FBI would simply take orders from a woman to take out her husband, who was the president at the time. And also, what would she have to gain from that? Absolutely nothing. I don't think she would kill the father of her children. And mm, some people say, well, her second husband died. Yeah, but it was an airplane crash like i feel like that's completely invalid like that was more things yeah that's more common back then fuck you invalid (laughs) like i'm i hate this i don't like it i get pretty heated about this theory so if you believe it i feel like you're trash love shelby (laughs) now since there are a thousand of combinations of he said she said hearsay near say conspiracy theories of who specifically was behind the gun that killed JFK. I I didn't want to focus on that because I feel like it's redundant. I think as a whole, it doesn't particularly matter who specifically did it. I think it matters whether it was a conspiracy or not and what was provided to the public following the assassination of JFK. So that's pretty much what I wanted to focus on today. My overall thoughts on it is it's undeniable that there were multiple shooters that were involved, that there were following acts that cover evidence up and constant misinformation or negligence with information or interrogations throughout the entire investigations on the JFK assassination. And also you have to think about who would have that power to do that? If you ask me, personally, it's a domestic-related inside job, inside the country, because what hasn't been released and probably would never be released is any information that the country would be involved in killing their own president. I feel like LBJ had to have some sort of involvement, not only because the closest people to JFK felt like he was involved in the assassination, and he was about to lose his power if JFK was reelected and wasn't going to be reelected as the vice president because JFK was going to dump him and he was going to lose everything. But what I really think is I don't think anyone would take such a risk of helping him take out the president that he didn't do this on his own. He had to have the Secret Service, the CIA, the FBI, and the mafia. I th- feel like they were all cohesively working together because I don't think anyone would take that much of a risk without reminding LBJ who put them in that position of power and also reassuring that they get what they want out of it by putting him into that position of being the new president. But that's my personal feelings on it because, I mean, it's known for a fact that the mafia was working with the CIA. There were so many inconspicuous mafia deaths that were linked to the JFK assassination. The fucking Secret Service dude didn't even jump in until, what, the second shot? Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas, like... Well, it was the third shot. Was it the third shot? Yeah, it was after the fatal shot. Literally your job to protect the president. 
why did you wait? And, like, I know that people have said that at first, when the gunshot went off, they thought it was just the car backfiring. Or firecrackers or something, yeah. Something, but, okay, so then there was a second shot. Where were you then? So you only jumped on the car after the fatal shot. I don't know. That's just well. There was multiple like pre-planning that went into the whole entire trip for the motorcade and choosing that route. And then what regular protocol would have been for a motorcade? It wasn't being enforced that specific day. Why? You said that there wasn't enough uh, protection that normally would be there Mm -hmm. for the president. Like, he was just kind of out in the open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Strange, right? Yeah. A little bit inconspicuous. Right. Kind of seems pretty pre-planned. And there is also theories that LBJ had ducked down before the shots had happened. Mm, that'd be interesting to see. Mm-hmm. I've never seen any footage, though, being able to see LBJ's car. It's mm-hmm. always just been... JFK's, Kennedy. yeah. Yeah. I do appreciate you focusing on the autopsy and the medical stuff because that is the most substantial form of evidence that we have for Mm -hmm. this. I mean, everything else is just speculation. I mean... No one's ever going to fucking know. No. No. it's fucking crazy. Especially if it was an inside job. They would never be able to release that information. Even though that it's up for... Even though it's up for, like, reevaluation for a release in uh, 2021, releases can always be pushed out if it causes a threat to, like, national security, anything like that. They can come to the determination it's not time to release that information. So either someone is still living or it would damage their reputation of American people and what they've been telling everybody for so many years. Right, that's what I'm saying. I don't think that they would ever come out with saying that there's there, because if they do that, then there goes the entire faith that civilian life has in government. But that's how we feel about it. What do you guys believe happened that day? And why? Do you believe that Jackie killed Jack? If you do, come fight me. (laughs) (laughs) and you know where you can do so at at the creepy burrito at gmail.com or you can hit us up at the creepy burrito on instagram or facebook we always want to hear those sweet ass reviews you guys can send them to itunes stitcher Podchaser, Castbox. you send them we'll read them we love them and we'll shout them out next episodes just do it we will cut them out and put them in a scrapbook. Yeah. That's filled with sauce. A sauce book? Sauce book. A cookbook? Oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm pooped. Put a lot of work in, guys. I wrote a whole bunch of stuff and then I deleted it all. I tried. And on that note, guys, a bye bye now. And then he was court-martialed again for farting, for farting, for farting.